the vision of Ethereum when it comes to the surge is uh, a vibrant ecosystem of robust rollups, all with immense transaction throughput. And then they post their data to the L1 for data availability, consensus, and settlement. And so the, the idea with the surge is to make posting that data as cheap and as easy as possible for these rollups. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We are recording this episode on February 6th, and we have a great interview on the future of the Ethereum roadmap uh, with, a, with a BlockWorks Research local, Westy. He does a great job kind of diving in on what's next, where we're at on this roadmap, what's, what kind of like what goals we're improving on. Uh, we really focused on the merge, the surge, and the scourge. So uh, how we're going to implement and make a more robust proof of stake network, uh, and then how we're going to make that scalable. And then lastly, how we're going to decentralize that and really focus on equitable transaction inclusion. Um, and as usual, we are joined by two other BlockWorks research analysts. This time we got Ren and Matt to discuss uh, everything that's going on in the market. It never gets boring in crypto. Uh, so we'll dive right into things, kind of kick off with uh, a cool throne this time. So I'll toss this over to you, Sam. What do you got and who do you got in the cool throne this week? Yeah, we actually talked about it briefly last week. I think it was David's, David's hot seat, which was Bitcoiners, because they're all mad about Ordinal's uh, consuming block space and spiking transaction fees on the Bitcoin network. I've actually got them in the cool throne this week, just because this is actually the most I've seen Bitcoin talked about in a very long time on my timeline, which, you know, take into account, it's not as Bitcoin focused. So... Um, this is getting more like the smart contract people in on the uh, in on the conversation. So I think that's pretty cool seeing Bitcoin back in the limelight a little bit. Uh, and Matt, you said this on Twitter, but, you know, in the past, whenever something's been really hard and 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 then there's something that comes in and makes it a lot easier to access, like it's usually a good idea to to try doing that thing. Uh, while it's still hard. And, you know, we're seeing this with ordinals. People are minting NFTs on the Bitcoin network. So I think as someone who's crypto native and like really deep in this stuff, I'm going to really regret not minting an ordinal NFT. Um, so that's something I got to throw on my to-do list. But yeah, I mean, you know, you saw it with the Uniswap airdrop, you saw it with punks, you saw it with yield farming, like all the people who were super early and, and going through the hurdles in order to do that activity. They wound up getting paid out pretty well for it, so I'm gonna throw ordinals in the in the cool throne this week and and go and try and uh, mint one myself. Matt, I know you've uh, toyed around with trying to mint one. Do you want to explain a little bit of that process and and what your experience has been so far? Yeah, so minting an ordinal is really tough. Um, it requires you to have a Bitcoin Core wallet and to run your own full node. So today, it's you know a really hard process to actually have one of these to make one of these inscriptions on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, ordinals are really cool because all the data is stored on chain. So unlike a lot of Ethereum NFTs where, you know, the data is stored maybe on an AWS server or OpenSea server or something like that, all these Bitcoin ordinals are actually like on-chain NFTs. Very cool. Um, I think to last I checked, it was something like a 5,000 and something had been minted. So that's less than a 10,000 collection on Ethereum. Pretty crazy. At the end of the day, the way I look at it, it's just like the risk reward. So your risk is you're paying, you know, a couple dollars for a transaction fee on Bitcoin plus the time consumption of figuring out how to actually follow this process that's you know pretty difficult so i guess that is a a little bit of a, a a haul for sure but at the same time the potential reward is so high and it's like you know there's no guarantees that these things take off or continue to gain momentum and steam but if they do they could be like very valuable just having minted one of the first you know couple thousand so i see no reason why if you have some time on your hands you shouldn't go play around with it and try to go 
uh, minted inscription. So my current understanding is that there's like no marketplace for these and they're really just like OT, OTC deals happening over Discord. And so to your point about that being hard, like you're right, that's probably the case here. But like my immediate reaction uh, is there's like two cases. Like one, that's like super bullish for scarcity. If there's you know, very hard to make new ones, it's a process to even get them like, okay, so then these are going to be desired. Uh, but the other case is that's so bearish for scalability. Um, you kind of like need some element of uh, to create that like mass mass need for these things if you think they're going to like pump like some of these 10k PFP projects. So uh, I really don't know which side of the fence to be on, but I, I really like your analogy, Matt. Of like if they're if it's hard to do, it's probably worth the time. Yeah, it will be that marketplace and that easy mechanism when they come if someone builds them, which I'm sure they will. You know, keep in mind these ordinals been around for or at least I've only seen them for a week and a half or two weeks. I'm not sure when the first one was actually minted. But anyways, like once those things are built, that's when, you know, there's the potential for like a real fire to to build under ordinals and see like real, you know, value speculation and kind of everything we see with normal NFTs over the last, call it, three years. Yeah, I think one interesting point to note is that someone basically ran some numbers and actually uploading a whole image of the NFT onto the Bitcoin network today is around 80% cheaper than trying to do the same thing on the Ethereum blockchain. And I think... Probably a lot of people, when they first started buying NFTs, didn't realize that the actual image itself wasn't like stored on chain, right? This just points to like a URL or like an IPFS server somewhere. And I'm not, I'm not sure how much people will care about that in the future. But I do think that if you want like a truly decentralized future, that image itself does also have to be stored on chain, right? And the fact that Bitcoin got it before Ethereum may leave a lot of effects a bit mad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, Bitcoin's ordinal is definitely a cool throne for for the books this week. Uh, and to keep the keep the cool throne trend going, I've I've actually got Frax. So everybody knows Frax as a stablecoin issuer. Uh, the Frax stablecoin itself still has over a billion dollars of outstanding supply. Um, you know, making it one of the larger uh, stablecoins that is trying to be a decentralized stablecoin. Um, recently, actually just today, uh, the February sixth, we released an Empire episode with Sam Kazimian, kind of going over. You know, a lot, we talked a lot about the philosophy of what Frax is um, and kind of how, you know, now they're like their newest product is Frax Ether, uh, like a liquid staking derivative. And really talking about how they view it versus how the market has viewed it has been it was kind of eye opening. Right. So because they're a stablecoin issuer, they created this stablecoin, this ETH peg stablecoin called Frax Ether. And so they use a two token model. Uh, we've kind of gone over before on this show, but as a brief summary, um, so if I'm a user and I come to Frax and to, I want to mint Frax Ether, uh, I give them one ETH and in return, I get one FRX ETH. And then the if I want to opt into those staking rewards, I have to actually stake uh, the Frax Ether into a, um, a staking contract, essentially, and, and then I'm eligible for those rewards. And what this does is it increases the amount of tokens that are earning rewards uh, and only distributes it to a smaller subset of those users. And so right now we're seeing outsized returns towards staked Frax Ether holders. Um, and, you know, obviously, I think that has played a pretty instrumental role in the popularity of this uh, staking derivative. And so if we look at it today, it's only a couple months old, and yet it's the fourth largest staking derivative, uh, over 140 million TVL, uh, and just the immense growth it's had it kind of proves to me personally that there's going to be a large demand around the highest yielding uh, liquid staking derivatives as we like zoom out and look into the future in a post-Shanghai world. Um, so you know, Frax is definitely on the cool seat for the growth of their LSD, uh, and I'm really intrigued by the model they're using. I think their ability 
they like really leaned into the fact that they they run the curve flywheel uh, and have maybe not run, but play a large portion in the curve flywheel and are really able to harness incentives and drive them towards their own pool. Uh, so really exciting to see that. And from a, a personal standpoint, right when this thing launched, I threw some ETH in there just as an experiment, uh, used convex, the Frax convex. So I'm getting FXS, CVX and CRV rewards. Uh, and I started doing this like, you know, a couple, couple was probably a couple months ago now. And so if I like annualize the returns I've gotten, I'm on, I am personally sitting in the, in the curve pool instead of the stake ETH rewards. And I'm at an 18% APR, which is pretty exciting. Um, kind of like, you know, my goal is obviously to beat the ETH, ETH yield uh, and at 18% I'm currently doing so. So what they're doing is historically working again, very short sample size, but pretty exciting to see a very different implementation. Uh, being properly executed. If you're allocating ETH to these liquid staking derivative protocols, would you say that, you know, FRX ETH, FRAX Ethereum is one that you would trust, you know, maybe you want to diversify your risk a little bit. So you put a little bit in Lido staked ETH, a little bit in Rocket Pool R ETH, a little bit in FRAX FRX ETH. What, what, like, how do you see the risks in these different liquid staking derivatives? And how would you personally allocate, you know, a large portion of Ethereum if you were putting them into LSDs? That is a phenomenal question. So, I mean, one a couple i feel like there's like three points of consideration one is the yield like that's the very obvious one uh what am i going to get the best return on uh and if i was going through this method i would probably be ignoring the curve pool rewards that frax does and say like pure eth yield who's going to drive the best return to me um uh, and so right now that is stake frax eth last i look is around seven percent when the other providers were around four ish percent or maybe four and a half and so i'd be looking at the yield the second one I look at is the decentralization factor, right? So who's running the nodes, who's running the validators within that ecosystem. Um, so if, as it pertains to FRAX, they're all currently core team managed. Uh, that is obviously not ideal. So I think as the, like they announced that post Shanghai is when they're going to kind of move to the decentralized uh, work on decentralization. Right now they're kind of focused on scalability. Uh, I think you could probably make an argument that there's a knock against FRAX, right? They've been saying they're going to decentralize the protocol as a whole for quite some time now. Uh, you know, we released a report saying they're going to do that at the end of 2022. Of course, we're two months in. We haven't seen that. You know, in speaking to Sam and the team, that is still a point of emphasis. And like that's, you know, they said that's going to really be what 2023 as a whole is about. Uh, I know that they have a very exciting decentralization model, and that is going to be that is through audits right now, I believe. So I think it's going to move to mainnet testing uh, at the end of February. So this month. Um, but I do think that's a, definitely a point of consideration. Like if one person is managing my staked ether, like that is, you know, that's a risk. Um, so yield decentralization, um, and then obviously smart contract risk. And so the amount of time that you have existed kind of like puts you through that battle tested state. Uh, and again, Frax ether is the youngest one of the, of the bunch. So I think like from a smart contract standpoint, you know, staked ETH through Lido seems to kind of be that gold standard at the moment, been around the longest, zero problems. I mean, there's over like billions of dollars. I don't, I can't, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it has billions of dollars within staked ETH. So I think those are kind of like the three points of consideration you have to consider. And the, you know, ultimately if you wanted to really balance those out evenly, I think you just probably take a, a, a mixed bag of the top four assets. Um, so that's probably where I would look at it, right? Because things like Rocket Pool prioritized decentralization over all of those. Uh, things like staked ETH kind of really prioritized composability. So you can kind of use staked ETH or wrap staked ETH in pretty much any DeFi protocol. Um, and then, you know, lastly, smart contract risk. I think, you know, whenever you're interacting in DeFi, that's got to be a chief concern of yours. But 
again, just the length of time you've existed, the amount of dollar value within your contracts makes you more attractive uh, to attempt to break into. And then therefore, you're more secure as time goes on is at least the theory. Yeah, the only thing I would add there would be liquidity across and I guess just composability across DeFi. Like, yes, Frax ETH has the best yield, but if you take into consideration, there's way more that you can do with Lido's ETH. Um, you know, you could loop it and leverage up your yield. There's there's all kinds of different strategies you could try. So I think the face value argument that Frax ETH is the best yield for any LSD is a bit misleading. Um, so yeah, that's the one thing I would add there. Counterpoint there is they have the beauty of this, like their whole vision is building this Trinity, right? So they have their own, uh, they have their own lending market in Fraxland that this will be integrated into. They will give you the ability to loop. Um, and it'll be interesting to see like kind of how those parameters shake out, uh, because there will be permission, permissionless asset listing in the future. And like Frax doesn't take a... They don't create revenue off Fraxland. Uh, it's solely just like give leverage to their products. And so that does make it like this very attractive, you know, again, back to the flywheel, like Frax built this stack to facilitate the growth of their assets. Uh, so I think like that is going to be very interesting to see how that kind of turns the corner in outstanding Fraxeth once it does get integrated. Because if you pull up the chart of Lido, uh, I think it's February 2022 was the listing. And it took about like 11 or so months to get to 2 million of uh, staked ETH through Lido. And then it took an, after those 11 months, they hit the 2 million mark. It only took another two months after the Aave listing to hit 4 million and double. Uh, so there is like that exponential growth factor because looping is such an attractive st strategy, right? You're just taking like leveraged returns on the ETH staking yield. And post Shanghai, when assets can be, I feel like their pegs can be better managed closer to, to, to one. And... Uh, it'll be interesting to see, like, I, I personally expect looping to become a huge trade again. We've already seen Compound V3 list, uh, Lido staked ETH and Coinbase staked ETH. We're seeing Aave's V3 list everything under the sun uh, when it comes to staking derivatives. We have Coinbase ETH, we have R ETH, we have staked ETH. Uh, and I think that's really just kind of everybody prepping uh, for the post-Shanghai world. Yeah, if I had to add one point on sort of like the yield generated I think in addition to the common loop trade, another thing that protocols will look out for is that there are run strategies where they will use the ETH yield to purchase something, right? For example, Ribbon has a product where they purely use the ETH yield to purchase at the money knockout barrier options. And for that, I would say liquidity isn't sort of that big of a deciding factor. You just want to maximize the yield you generated so you can run that sort of a little more exotic strategy. And I do think Fax's uh, value proposition there is quite strong. What could go wrong once we're loop, looping our leverage 100x on our stake ETH? I, I can see nothing go wrong with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's it's a scary, uh, scary feature to think about. Honestly, I don't, I, I don't know if any of you guys had the chance to look at the uh, Vitalik post as it relates to I think it was Rye and like how they're trying to basically enable different collateral types because they have no competitive advantage at all in terms of you know, only offering ETH against their stable coins and they, they've got to fight against all these other LSDs and, and the ETH staking yield. Um, but it was interesting in the comments to see Vitalik say that, yeah, Rocket Pool is not the best option because a 51% attack turns in from 32, so the amount of ETH that you need to be a validator, uh, times N, meaning like the amount of collateral that you would need to execute a 51 attack versus 16 times N. And then... Uh, Rocket Pool also is trying to lower it to eight. So that way, you know, you could run 
uh, 80th as collateral with three other um, pooled uh, users capital and, and, and run it that way. But I guess I'm just curious uh, if any of you guys saw that. And then also if, um, you know, what Vitalik would have to say about Frax ETH, because you got to think he would not be super happy with the Sam Casmian model of running them all in your basement. That's a really interesting take and actually something I didn't consider because, you know, Rocket Pool's like main priority was to like create this decentralized model and like they're trying to like uh, it's almost like a public good model where they want to benefit the network. Um, so that's actually really interesting. I'm, I'm trying to think of something on the spot and make myself sound intelligent, but the reality is uh, I don't have anything. But um, where I think that gets interesting is really just the fact that because to your point, um, they're going down to eight ETH and like you, ha- I guess you have to put the ten percent uh bond in ripples or rpl sorry uh to kind of like increase the amount that you the that validators have as an incentive to you know not act maliciously towards the network but again like the the net net like that is being lowered um so yeah interesting especially because like rocket pool itself makes zero protocol protocol revenue and all the revenue flows to the validators so if you were a malicious actor you can be like okay i'll spin these up in the attempt to get a 51 percent attack up and running and during that time before i make my attack like i'm making outsized returns. So that's a super interesting question for the Rocket Pool team and maybe a potential future guest we can have on. I did ask Rocket Pool about this before. Like, I mean, like they can go as low as they want. Uh, the answer they gave me was they think that four is the theoretical limit uh, that they're comfortable with in terms of how much one validator would have to provide to run a node. I would add that overall net net, I do think it lowers the security of the Ethereum network, but Rocket Pool also increases the amount of ETH that can be staked in the Ethereum network. So there's a bit of a canceling out effect there, but net, I do think it's worse. I might be mistaken here, but I think it would make sense that as long as Rocket Pool had less than a 12.5% market share of all staked ETH, that having, you know, four ETH as your <clears throat> minimum security validator would probably be acceptable. Um, and then it's only really once they have such a large portion of all staked ETH, so much demand for their validators, for sorry, for, you know, our ETH, for their liquid staking derivative, then at that point, it might be a serious concern. But I guess until... Um, they reached like a dominant market share that it would probably be not too much of a risk to the Ethereum network. On that note, there actually was a governance vote a few weeks ago, both by RocketFu and Lido. And it was quite funny seeing everyone on Lido vote, we won't ever like limit ourselves, even if we become the dominant LSE players. Whereas the people on RocketFu voted that, yes, we will self-limit our growth if we eventually become too big in the Ethereum staking space. That is easy to say as the one who isn't the dominant staking derivative provider though. So, but yeah, you gotta like where their, where their heads are at. I definitely like the, the rocket pool ethos, but Matt, I can kick it over to you for your cool throne of the week. If you're ready. I actually have a hot seat this week, but uh, my hot seat today is Uniswap's governance. Uniswap governance for the last few weeks, or I guess week has been a complete shit show for lack of better words. Basically um, mid January, Uniswap, so the way Uniswap governance works is they start with temperature checks, off-chain voting through snapshot, just to gauge sediment among uni holders. Like, is this something that we should put on chain? Is there enough support that it actually makes sense to, you know, propose it on chain as a real proposal? So mid-January, there's a proposal. Should we deploy Uniswap V3 onto BNB chain, formerly Binance Smart Chain? The vote passes with, you know, predominantly yes votes. There wasn't really much controversy there. And then there was a subsequent vote for who should we use as our cross-chain communication protocol. Should we use layer zero? Should we use wormhole? Or should we use two other options? I believe Dbridge or Seller, um, but I'm less familiar with those. Anyways, it was really between 
Wormhole and Stargate, or sorry, Layer Zero, Star, Stargate's parent company, um, parent protocol. Layer Zero loses the vote, Wormhole passes. I believe it was something like 65 or 70% towards Wormhole. And, you know, the vote goes up on chain. Okay, we're going to deploy on BNB chain using Wormhole as our cross-chain communication. The reason that Uniswap needs cross-chain communication is because if you have your uni tokens on BNB chain, you need to be able to vote on proposals on Ethereum mainnet. So, the you know, you're using either Layer Zero or Wormhole to communicate back to mainnet your vote, yes, no, abstain, whatever it might be. Anyways, vote goes up. A16Z, who controls a huge amount of uni tokens, I believe 4% of the supply was, you know, number I was seeing around Twitter, um, comes in and says, we were not able to vote on this snapshot proposal because of technical difficulties with the way we store our coins with Fireblocks as our custodian, but we can vote on chain and we are going to turn this proposal down if it comes in and uses uh, Wormhole. Keep in mind that A16Z was one of the biggest uh, backers of of Stargate and of Layer Zero. So it makes sense. They have a huge incentive that they would want to, you know, use Layer Zero for Uniswap's cross-chain communication, um, help out their other portfolio company. Uniswap's also their portfolio company. Anyways, they come in voting with their 15 million liquid token saying, no, I, we are not deploying on BNB chain. Of course, they actually didn't care about deploying on BNB chain. They're fine with that. It was just the choice of cross-chain communication through Wormhole that they had huge issue with. Came in 15 million, swayed the vote no. Following their vote no that swayed it in favor of no, we saw a lot of these delegates come in and vote yes. So they actually swayed it back to yes. Interestingly enough, some of these delegates were like Penn's Blockchain Club and U Michigan's Blockchain Club, who have all of their tokens delegated to them by A16Z. So A16Z's tokens actually helped sway the vote against them. So it's kind of crazy, like not something we've really ever seen before. It's just a, a big mess over there. I'm sure A16Z is not happy. Whether or not they take their tokens back from U Michigan and Penn, it's still up in the air. I bet they don't. It's probably a pretty bad look, especially because they're like a VC and they want, you know, if kids come out of those clubs and go create a great protocol, they don't they don't want bad blood there. They want they want to be on the cap table. So we'll see. But you know, it's just a, a crazy situation. Um, and you know, yeah, definitely worthy of a hot seat in my opinion. So I saw I think it was Fubar actually made this tweet, but his so there's like all this sentiment around you know VCs are controlling these protocols like we hate the VCs they're such bad people and this is like the same sentiment that we saw like when VCs are selling tokens like they're such bad people we hate the VCs so it's like okay so you don't want me to sell the tokens and now I don't want me to use them in governance it's like well what am I supposed to do with them like the whole value prop of the uni token is to vote in governance like right like today it has no value accrual um, so I don't know it's like this is like a byproduct of one token, one vote type of governance. So like, this is what we're going to have to deal with if those are the systems you in implement. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's like, uh, it's just interesting to see how everybody wants to point fingers at somebody, but not that many protocols are implementing unique governance techniques or strategies. Yeah, we chatted about this a little bit on our on our morning call this morning, but I feel like quadratic voting just makes a ton of sense. Obviously, no one has figured out governance at all. And this is just a prime example of that. <laughs> so I think we should continue to experiment with different different governance mechanisms because no one has a silver bullet today. And I think the more experimentation early on, the better because these problems are only going to get bigger and bigger as the value at stake also increases. So I'd rather experiment now than later. Yeah, interestingly, this morning, one of our analysts, uh, David, found out that Uniswap Labs was also an investor in Layer Zero, I believe. And I think that could throw a potential kink in the entire process, right? Because technically, it is in Uniswap Labs' interest to utilize Layer Zero 
as a cross-chain communication tool rather than wormhole. Will we see a scenario where they completely ignore the governance vote? I wouldn't think that's too crazy, given that we're in crypto and governance is a complete sham. I doubt Uniswap Labs come, comes in and does that just because, so they're already based in New York City and they've had, so I've heard like, you know, through the grapevine that they've had a lot of uh, regulator, they've had a lot of eyes on them from regulators since, you know, basically from their launch. So I think that Uniswap Labs is definitely doing their very, very best to, you know, stay away from DAO governance and the protocol. Um, one of the main reasons that they created the Uniswap Foundation this year, earlier, or sorry, in last year, at the end of last year. Um, so I definitely don't think that Uniswap Labs will like directly go in and do that, but I would not be surprised if they lobby delegates in order to, you know, there's still a couple of days left in this vote. It hasn't passed yet. So I could see them, uh, you know, backing A16Z. I also saw Robert Leshner was like one of the, uh, the larger yes voters here. And I don't know, like he's been around since the early days and you could see the argument that like net net, we just want. It makes sense for Uniswap to be deployed onto BNB, right? Because their license around the UniV3 code ends April 1st, I believe. And so it's pretty fair to say that that will be forked and deployed onto that chain if Uniswap doesn't do it itself. Um, so like they should be there. They should be the ones that are kind of have that market share. So it'd be a shame if something like more of a on the politics side of things is really what held that up. Yeah, I think it brings up an interesting, like kind of grander point on DAO governance as well. Like I remember maybe nine months ago or so, it was all around CT. Like Hasu was talking about it. All these big names were talking about Kobe. Um, you know, governance tokens have no value. That was kind of the rhetoric. Governance tokens have no value. This is kind of a prime example of governance tokens do have value. You know, like you can actually sway votes in your best interest and it might not be in the protocol's best interest or at least in lots of people's opinions, not in the protocol's best interest. But, you know, if you're a big investor, like controlling protocols really does have value. And I think we're going to see more and more of this in the future as like, and people, people's opinions are going to sway as well to, you know, like controlling these treasuries, controlling these protocols. It's like very, very valuable thing, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Moving on to the next crew zone and the last one that we have for today, we're going to talk a bit about Hovi. Hovi listed a FTX user depth on Sunday with the token ticker FUD. One of our analysts called it fear, uncertainty, and degenerate debt trading, which I think is a little more apt considering what's happened with the price. So also shout out to our newsletter. If you haven't subscribed to it, please subscribe to it. It's great. Um, gives you a lot of alpha in the morning. So back to Kobe, they listed this FUD token with a 20 million initial supply. And on their launch blog, they said it should be priced between zero and five USDT. So assuming five USDT represents a 100% chance of recovery, that should be worth around $100 million worth of debt. As of right now, that debt token is worth 66.8 on Huobi, which means either people are pricing in a 1,350% chance of recovery, which, you know, doesn't really make sense, um, or they're pricing in Huobi can get back a lot of the assets no one really knows what debt is actually under this token, how much debt will be recovered by Huobi itself. And Huobi also plans on doing an airdrop once they have confirmed how much debt that they can actually recover or how much debt is even on like the FTX accredited list. So a bit of a scammy situation. No one really knows what's happening. The price doesn't make any sense at all, but it's crypto people will find ways to make money. I wonder if Justin Sun had anything to do with, you know, this new token. Um, I know, like, he's very involved with Huobi. Sorry, I think Justin Leader, he, Justin might even be the owner. Um, I forget what his exact involvement is, but I know that he's very involved in the exchange. So I wonder if this is kind of something to do with him and his tokens. I just know 
uh, anything that he's involved in, I generally try to stay away from and, you know, screams shady business to me. But obviously other people would disagree with that, given that Tron has a huge following and large amount of stable coins. And I think third largest TVL of any chain, if I'm not mistaken. It was just uh, well, last month where he was moving $100 million of stable coins over to the exchange. Um, you know, kind of sparking rumors around the solvency of the exchange. And then we see them uh, kind of push into this area, which is like the super degenerate type gambling, honestly. Like we don't, to Ren's point, we don't even know the backing. Like you don't even know what you're trading, which I guess, yeah, what's the difference between that and some other random shit coin that's basically just a number on a screen, no more, no less. So I don't know, maybe they're, I don't know. I, I don't want to speculate too hard here, but uh, I guess that kind of like pivots to the broader area of just tron itself because i've been like doing some stablecoin digging the other day and usdc has like vastly overtaken the amount of transfer volume on ethereum relative to usdt but if you look at the market caps of the two usdt continues to trend higher while usdc has kind of it's a little slightly down but mostly stagnant overall over the past couple months and so if you look at to where this tether is being printed to it's like almost exclusively on tron and right now there's about 34 billion dollars of tron of usdt on tron uh, and binance holds roughly 14 of that 34 billion and so like i know back in the day tron was kind of like the exchange where or the excuse me the blockchain that exchanges would use to hold stable coins just given the it was you know thought to be relatively cons uh, secure given the relation to justin sun and they, it was just cheaper transaction fees as a whole so but to see like Tether still being aggressively minted onto Tron really sparks questions around like, like why, where is that Tether going? Um, and it wasn't that long ago that I was on in a uh, Twitter uh, discussion with the CrocSwap founder and he was like pointing out the immense TVL on Tron. Uh, then if you, again, you peel back another layer, there's $2 billion of Bitcoin collateral posted to JustLend and like, okay, it's, it's condensed to two wallets that were made in the same month. And it's like, there's only one person alive that's holding $2 billion of Bitcoin in JustLend. So I don't know. It just really gives me questions around Tron as a whole. If I had to guess what's really happening on Tron and given its involvement with Justin Sun, it's probably the priming way for people living in China to escape the capital controls and get it out of China. Because if you're not familiar, China has very, very strict capital controls on the amount of assets or currency that one can move out of the country. If I'm not wrong, it's limited to 50,000 a year. And I would guess a lot of whales in China, especially during COVID, didn't have as much confidence in the Chinese economy or the government perhaps cracking down very heavily on crypto. And Tron is basically where they're parking a large amount of their assets and net worth. Why do you think they would choose Tron versus, you know, Ethereum or L pick any L1, L2? They probably think Ethereum is controlled by like, the people in the US and like they don't want to use USDC because it's probably like more heavily regulated. They just want to use the most unregulated blockchain network and the most unregulated stablecoin as possible. Yeah. And the reason actually what kind of sparked that whole like research I was doing was uh, there was somebody on Twitter who was like touting that Coinbase partnering with USDC and Circle was like this terrible thing and that Tether is really the best stablecoin out there. And so that's kind of what unfolded all this, this trouble. But uh, yeah, it's just interesting to see how like there really is social consensus in like different geo geographical areas around like what the safest stablecoin is. Um, yeah, so that's kind of an interesting take, Ren. Uh, I kind of like your perspective there because I do think it is like a, a geographical difference there that like what, you know, which stablecoin people find the most stable.
And we even see that with like use uh, like people who use certain exchanges, right? Like I feel like Coinbase is very popular in the U.S., where Binance is very popular abroad. And it's, so I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see how that social dynamic kind of plays out as well. Yeah, I think that's a good time to to wrap this up. We appreciate you guys coming on. Now we can head over to uh, our interview with Westy on all things Ethereum roadmap. But first, I want to tell everyone to go check out BlockWorksResearch.com. Uh, if you go to the research tab and toggle free research, you can read some of our free reports there. Uh, there's also a sign up link to the newsletter on that site, which you'll see on the left hand panel, which Ren shouted out a little bit earlier. And also feel free to give us a follow at Blockworks Res on Twitter. It's just Blockworks RES. Um, but yeah, it's uh, some of the most compelling research in the space, and you'd be missing out to not check it out. So. Uh, over to Westy. All righty, everyone. We are joined today by Westy on the other side of the intro section of the podcast. Uh, he's joining us today again as a guest. Uh, this time we are discussing what is next on the Ethereum roadmap, specifically as it pertains to the merge, the surge, and the scourge. So uh, everybody knows that we migrated from a proof of work to a proof of stake network. Uh, and that's, you know, the, I feel like the, the common misnomer is that was the end of the merge, right? Uh, but no, Westy is here to tell us why that's not the case, uh, what we've accomplished so far and what is to come. So Westy, I'll kind of toss it over to you. Um, you know, how, where are we on this, uh, on the roadmap specifically as it tains, pertains to the Ethereum merge? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's good to separate the merge sort of as an event which like you said, was that transition from proof of work to proof of stake. And then the merge sort of as like a roadmap item, which you can think of as not only the implementation of proof of stake, but having a like a simple, robust, like version of proof of stake that Ethereum is proud of and can say like, we're done essentially. Um, so yeah, looking back at what's happened, like you said, we the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, I went successfully. And I think the first thing to note is just how incredible that was, like as a feat of engineering. I mean, a lot of people analogized it to changing a plane's engine mid-flight, and that's really what it was. And so it's just incredible that it happened as smoothly as it did. But I think the the biggest impacts were surely on specifically the supply dynamics of ETH. So I was playing around with ultrasound money earlier today and basically found out that per year, $4.2 million more ETH was being emitted under proof of work than currently under proof of stake, which at current ETH prices is around $7 billion per year in sell pressure that was taken off the market. And obviously you're not gonna feel all of that at once. So you're not gonna feel that specifically when the merge happened, you're gonna feel that over time as the sell pressure sort of piles up um, because a lot of the market is due to, to flows, inflows and outflows essentially. And then if you pull up ultrasound.money uh, right now, you can see but since the merge, ETH has actually been deflationary. Um, I think so far it's by 9,600 ETH in total since the merge at a negative 0.02% inflation rate. So like so far we've already seen immense impacts uh, from the merge as an event in terms of ETH supply. But yeah, there's definitely a lot more to come um, specifically with Shanghai upcoming in March that enables withdrawals. Speaking of Shanghai, I feel like wherever you look on Twitter, it's either going to be the biggest nuke of all time or it's just going to be a bullish unlock. What's your take? What's the withdrawal queue look like? Can you kind of explain for the listeners what that uh, dynamic looks like? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a pretty complicated process, but I mean, it's actually simple once you break it down. So yeah, I'll start with explaining sort of how the the queue itself works or how like the withdrawal period as a, as a whole works. 
So essentially you have to go through a couple different processes. So you have to go through an exit queue where you actually like exit the validator set, then some like delay period to make sure that um, any validators that were slashed need to wait some extra period of time. And then after that, um, there's like a, a smaller period where there's essentially sweeps of the network's addresses at 16 per block. And once your address gets hit and they know you have a withdrawal, then you're able to withdraw. So we'll go through that one by one. So the, the exit queue is based on a churn limit. And that churn limit is essentially, you, you take the total number of validators and you divide that by two to the 16th power essentially. And so if we assume 500,000 validators, that churn limit would be seven. You round down to the nearest whole number. Um, and so what that essentially means is that per epoch or epoch, depending on how you say it, um, you can have seven validators exit um, essentially. And then after you, you've waited in that queue and successfully exited, then you must wait uh, a delay period. And again, that's based on whether you've been slashed or not. So if you haven't, that's like a, a fixed around 27 hours. And then if you were slashed, it's 36 days. It's uh, essentially like an extra way to mitigate um, malicious actors, essentially. Um, and then after that period, this is also where partial withdrawals come into play. So there's full withdrawals where you like exit the validator set and then partial withdrawals are your essentially balance over 32 ETH. And uh, essentially, after all these periods of full withdrawals, they have those sweeps that I was talking about. You, every 16 per block, addresses are swept, and they basically check, do they have a, a withdrawal? And if so, then they send that ETH to your execution layer. And that like partial withdrawals only go through this sweep, essentially. And at the current number of validators, we can expect that process to take at max 4.4 days. Like if you're at the very end of that, that sweeping cycle, essentially. Um, so yeah, overall, I mean, you asked for my my take on what'll happen. I think there's a lot to talk about with that. Um, my original expectation was I thought there was going to be a really large exit queue uh, once Shanghai uh, was implemented, specifically specifically because of a lot of the recycling of validators, meaning that there's a lot of validators who had like specific implementations with their staking early on back um, when the Beacon Chain was live. I can think of Lido as a great example where they were operated under multi-sig as opposed to how it's currently implemented and they're coming out with V2 soon. So I can imagine they want to sort of recycle these validators and enter them in a, in a different way. But at the same time, I was looking through the numbers and one of the, the bigger things is that in order to have a withdrawal process, you need your credentials to be updated. So originally the credentials, they called them zero X zero zero credentials. That's how it originally was. But in order to have withdrawals enabled, you need to update that to 0x01. Um, and only as of January 9th, only 39% of validators had the correct credentials to even withdraw both full and partial. And so if you only have 40% of validators that can even withdraw, that obviously reduces the number that um, can essentially withdraw and sell um, and, and contribute to that exit queue. Um, but then on top of that, like with the recycling of validators, I'm sure it's of that 40%, even a smaller number that are going to either exit entirely or go through that recycling. And so while originally I thought it was going to be like 70 days plus, I think my new estimates are going to be around, say, like 30 days, like four weeks ish is what I expect out the gate. And then we'll slowly, slowly 
go down over time, essentially. And I think one of the most interesting points there is that there's a separate exit queue specifically for people that are looking to withdraw their rewards, right? Because uh, if you pull up that chart that says, you know, here's the price at which uh, users have deposited into the ETH2 staking contracts, um, you know, you see that like there is a good chunk of people that are, are users that deposited when, and they're significantly in the money on those deposits. So they deposited uh, below the current price. Uh, and now they've been, you know, this was like almost a year ago or so, and they've been accruing these rewards this whole time. So the question is, okay, if I've made, you know, made a ton of money on my position, like maybe I want to like lock in some of those profits. Um, so like, you know, I feel like the general consensus is probably around like those people wanting to withdraw uh, and potentially sell. But the fact that you can scrape and sweep your rewards and not clog up the entire queue, I think is something that's a, a very, uh, very well-designed system, right? And, and you put out a great thread on Twitter that kind of walks us through this entire process. Um, and I'd love to just, I'm sharing screen now for the, the viewers rather than the listeners, but if you could walk us through this chart, uh, because I feel like if we think of what other proof of stake chains are, uh, we kind of gravitate right to the towards the Cosmos ecosystem. And they have, most chains there have a 21 day unbonding period. Um, so, you know, looking at this chart that shows us uh, around like a six or so percent of the val current validator stack saying, uh, like trying to leave the system would, would cause that. Um, you know, do you think that's something that's predictable going forward or is something that really just going to vary based on risk, risk preferences at that point in time? Yeah, so I can definitely explain this chart here. So essentially in the x-axis, you have percentage of total validators exiting. This is sort of as a way to, to blanket, depending on, you could have 500,000 validators, you have a million, it really doesn't matter as long as you have like the percentage of total exiting. And then it shows like the amount of days that you can expect that execute to be. And yeah, like you said, something like Cosmos has a fixed exit period, whereas this has more dynamic based on how many people are exiting at a given time. And I think to equate to Cosmos, like 21 days exit period, um, you need essentially 6.2 to 7.3% to leave at the same time. Um, but also this doesn't take into account the, the extra 4.4 days you may get depending on where you are in that sweeping cycle. So it could be as low as 5% exiting at any given time to have 21 day wait, um, which I think is pretty reasonable to expect over a long period of time. I think it does converge maybe not to 21 days, maybe you have 4% exiting at any given time as that it converges to. So maybe you have like a 19, 20 day wait is what I expect. But yeah, essentially that's what this chart is showing that depending on the percentage of total validators exiting, you can have like a really long or really short wait time. Is there any catalyst in particular? You know, everyone's talking about withdrawals, but what about entering the queue? Because it's not exactly easy for people prior to this being enabled, like Shanghai and having withdrawals being enabled to literally just send your money into a black box for 6% yield, never knowing when you're getting your money back. So outside of that, do you think there's any catalyst in particular that would spur people to to, to stake more aggressively than, than prior? That's a great question. So it's good to clarify that this exit queue also applies when you're entering to be a validator. So there's an entry queue as well. And yeah, in terms of like what catalyst could drive further staking, I think one thing is to look at would be LSD adoption. And a lot of the reasons why that they maybe haven't been adopted in the future or in the past is because like price parity, like there's no way to actually arbitrage prices when they, they fall below that ETH peg because you can't exit and basically capture that spread. Um, but now that withdrawals are enabled, 
and specifically with LSD protocols, which maybe we dive into later, like their withdrawal queue is going to be way less than that of any validator actually actually exiting. I think the fact that you have better guarantees around price parity of an LSD, that's going to drive a lot more people into staking through these LSD protocols. And then with solo staking, I think it's along the same veins in that, like you said, a lot of this in the past, just like throwing your ETH into a black box, like you don't even see your rewards, like you're just waiting until withdrawals are enabled. And for a lot of people, they're not up to date on a lot of these uh, Ethereum Foundation calls, these dev calls essentially, and are pretty, which are pretty convicted in getting Shanghai and withdrawals enabled in March. Like they're just waiting until they are sure that they can withdraw their ETH at any point in the future and that they can accrue those staking rewards to their execution layer address. So I think like, yeah, withdrawals are definitely a big catalyst to see um, staking rise uh, throughout the course of this year after Shanghai. So you, you mentioned liquid staking derivatives again there. And so I think the Lido point is pretty interesting, just given that they do need to recycle some of those validators out from the multi-sig and onto their current governance structure. But I, like, I don't know if they put out any statements around this or made any commentary, but I personally, I'd have to think like, okay, there's going to be some turbulence immediately following Shanghai. At least that's the expectation. Why not just wait another month, right? Like those validators have been operating under the multi-sig for, for this long. Like, I, in, you know, in my view, I think it would be okay to like hold on to a, some multi-sig risk for like at least another month just to like almost do the network a favor. Like let's already, let's let everybody else go through and say, do we want to unstake? Do we want to not unstake? Let's see what it looks like. And then let's, let's push this, you know, larger sum of, of, uh, churn through the network at that time. But have you heard anything around that? Yeah, that's a really good, great point. And one of the reasons why I don't think there's going to be as big of a queue to start is, yeah, like you said, maybe the, these, these LSD protocols or the people that have to recycle, I mean, they've already been under this implementation for a long time. They might as well wait to see, okay, what is the exit queue? Do I wait till a little, it's a little lower? Do I wait a month or two? Right. There's no reason why they have to go immediately, which is a big thing. And then we can also get into like LSDs and how they're handling their own withdrawals as opposed to just solo staking ETH or the, the validators behind the liquid staking. So looking at Lido's implementation, I can expect a lot of other LSDs to follow suit. Although Lido is the only one that's explicitly explained how they're going to handle withdrawals as a protocol. But essentially how it works is there's an ETH buffer between both people depositing their ETH to be staked as well as staking rewards for the protocol. And this ETH buffer can essentially help if there's any withdrawals um, in the short term. And so by having this buffer, if people want to withdraw their, their ETH, they're able to do so. And they expect that the wait will be between 28 to 48 hours on average. Um, obviously, it's going to be higher if there's a lot more withdrawals and they actually do need to exit some of their validators. But you can imagine that having this buffer can sort of mitigate uh, a lot of the the waiting period that usually would result. And so I expect a lot of LSD protocols to be the same, which again contributes to that price parity because people are allowed to like easily arbitrage the price as it falls below peg. So there's a lot of different setups as well with onboarding, you know, ETH, uh, ETH stakers into liquid staking derivatives, like Rocket Pool, for example, you need RPL to bond next to a validator and it kind of stunts growth a little bit. But then Lido, on the other hand, you've got 29 hand pick node operators, but that's more of a centralized approach. 
I know as a part of the merge, you also have DVT, Distributed Validator Technology. Can you dive into that and explain the, the significance of it? Yeah, definitely glad to. And definitely we'll talk about how they fit into the LSD roadmap as well. But yeah, to put simply DVT, like you said, also known as Distributed Validator Technology, allows multiple participants to run nodes that contribute to one validator. And then it essentially splits up the private key between these actors so it doesn't exist on one machine. And essentially that allows for one, there be to be no single point of failure, both with respect to like the private key and that security, but also with respect to uptime. So for example, if you have four nodes all contributing to one validator, but really you only need one of those nodes to be online for it to achieve uptime. And so you have a lot more guarantees when it comes to that. And obviously if you don't have uh, sufficient uptime, you can be slashed as a validator, which is pretty huge as well. Um, and then it also enables essentially because you can split up a validator that as an individual, you don't necessarily need 32 ETH to actually contribute to validation and receive staking rewards. Like if it's split up again, four nodes, well, you only need eight ETH to actually contribute to that validator, which, um, lowers the barrier to entry for validating, which I think is pretty big. Um, but yeah, heading into how. LSDs can implement DVT, which I think a lot of people think of DVT specifically in terms of solo staking for those benefits I just uh, described, but I think LSDs can actually benefit a lot from implementing DVT. And I know Lido has already done this on testnet with a, a couple of folks, um, but essentially like LSDs, they obviously want to improve the security uh, with the, the validators they have on hand. And so by splitting up the private key, that obviously helps there. But I think the biggest thing for them is the uptime, right? Um, so if you like are able to ensure that none of the validators backing this liquid staking derivative get slashed for not having enough uptime, uh, I think that that's pretty huge. And then it also allows, and Lido's using it for this specifically, to have more per permissionless validators so anyone can come in and validate because otherwise Lido was just taking in like whitelisted uh, validators that they knew that they could trust to keep that uptime and that security. Well, now that Lido can essentially run its own nodes to then contribute to validators that other people are processing, they just have like better ways to ensure security uh, by implementing DVT. And I can imagine other LSDs follow suit. So can you just double down on why DVT improves uptime? Is it just because, you know, having multiple people running the same validator, that's just like more opportunity to keep the validator online? Yeah, I mean, it's really that simple, like, because you have multiple nodes running the same validator, only one of those nodes actually has to be online technically for the validator to run as intended. Perfect. Okay, yeah, that makes total sense then. Uh, I could see that being like a really attractive uh, opportunity for, yeah, not just solo stakers, but also LSDs. Um, but if we jump down to single, uh, single secret leader elections, you know, what how exactly do these fit into all of the all of what we we're talking about um and you know i guess why are they beneficial to the ethereum network as a whole yeah absolutely and i'm just going to refer to these as ssle because the title is such a mouthful but yeah so essentially what it is is um a group of participants can randomly choose a leader from that group where the identity of that leader is only known to the leader itself and no one else in that group and how that pertains to proof of stake networks is you can really choose a proposer of a given block 
And the only person that knows that they are the proposer is the pro proposer themselves. Whereas right now in Ethereum, you ba basically know who the proposer is before that block actually happens. And there's like a specific attack that is well known that results um, as a result of knowing who the proposer is. So let's say you're the proposer of the next block than the one that's currently happening. Well, now you can essentially DDoS the network of the current proposer and force them to create an empty block. And then for your block, you essentially, not only do you have the transactions you were normally gonna get, but you also get the transactions of the block before you. And that includes the priority fees and the MEV. And so um, obviously this can be a profitable attack. And by including SSLEs, you can essentially mitigate this attack. Um, I think so far, uh, I think Dan, you looked into the data of how many empty blocks there there have been since the merge. I think there's been 1750 so far, and it's hard to tell whether these empty blocks were due to this kind of attack or just general ent empty blocks where no one had a transaction because you can't really tell if the, the network was DDoS. You'd have to go to pr the proposer themselves or maybe see mempool data. It's really, really tough. Um, but whether or not it's happening at a, at a large rate, I think it's obviously better to not even allow this attack to happen, as well as there's probably more attacks that we just haven't researched yet or haven't come up with that can come as the result of knowing who the proposer is ahead of time. Yeah, I guess the follow-up research I need to do there is, yeah, so, you know, there's been like about almost 2,000 blocks that uh, were empty since the merge. And I, I guess if the idea is to get a substantial amount of MEV on the following block, then if you like compared the the MEV taken on the following block to the average MEV that we've seen extracted in a given block, and if it was significantly higher, then I think there would be like, okay, maybe there is credence to the fact that we are seeing this attack get played out in real time. Um, but yeah, no, that, that that's super interesting as well. Uh, and I, th I guess to keep the ball rolling here, the next one uh, on the Ethereum roadmap, specifically as it pertains to the merge, is single slot finality. Um, you know, finality is something you hear a lot in the blockchain world. What is finality? Why is it important to uh, any blockchain, especially Ethereum? Uh, and how are we going to improve that through time? Put as simply as possible, finality is eventually is essentially having a, a very high degree of certainty that the the blocks that were created, like that's it, like they're done, like you can't go back and change it essentially. Um, and so for Ethereum, their finality time actually takes two epochs or epochs for them to reach finality. Whereas with something like Solana touts, I think 600 milliseconds in their finality and then Tendermint, I think already has single slot finality. Um, but a lot of the belief from Ethereum in the past is that what they call like medium finality time. So not super long, but obviously not single slot was good enough. And they didn't think they're that improving it to single slot finality really brought that much improvement. But I think they, they've since changed their mind on that. I think the biggest thing and the biggest reason why you want fast finality is basically to stop a reorg from happening, which is basically like an alternative version of the chain. So for example, let's say like Justin Tron loads up a billion dollars on Aave and then just like loops it unnecessarily. And all of a sudden there's a huge MEV opportunity for liquidation there. Well, then someone might, you know, buy a bunch of stake and try and reorg the chain. And so you might as well not even have that be possible. And so with single, with a uh, yeah, single slot finality, you basically stop any reorgs from, from happening because you're able to finalize the chain in that specific slot. And then another thing is just like 
general user experience. So I know if you guys have ever bridged away from Ethereum, you have to wait like so long, like 13 minutes for it to actually bridge. And that's because they have to wait until the chain achieves finality. Um, and it's super annoying. Whereas now I think, I think the bridges will probably still wait a little bit because they might as well, but definitely not like 13 minutes. It's going to be a lot, a lot better on the user experience when it comes to bridging, when it comes to getting off exchanges, et cetera. I didn't even think about it too. Like in terms of payments, like if you want to go buy coffee with stable coins someday, you know, in the future, like you got to make sure that finality is near instant. So that brings a lot of like real world use case examples. So that's pretty cool to hear, but that's uh that, that that's funny. Cause we just spent 24 minutes explaining the merge <laughs> and like most people honestly think the merge is over. So I guess this is a good time to switch to the surge, which is kind of some of the more exciting stuff with actually scaling Ethereum to, to the masses. So do you mind starting with the surge, what it is and, and kind of the steps it's going to go through in order to execute it? Yeah, gladly. This is definitely the most exciting area of the roadmap, um, given that, yeah, like you said, it, it's the it's the goal of really scaling Ethereum. I think the specific numbers they want is 100,000 TPS, whereas now the realized TPS is like 12. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot more scaling to definitely go. And sort of the vision of Ethereum when it comes to the surge is uh, like a vibrant ecosystem of robust rollups, all with immense transaction throughput. And then they post their data to the L1 for data availability, consensus, and settlement. And so the, the idea with the surge is to make posting that data as cheap and in, as easy as possible for these rollups, right? And that's where it's sort of EIP4844, also known as proto-dank sharding, which I might call PDS just for short, and then eventually dank sharding, which I'll call DS, uh, they come into play. They're like the embodiment of this vision for the Ethereum L1. Perfect. So let's let's kick it off with with proto dank sharding EIP four eight four four. I'm sure anyone in the community has heard four eight four four and like a, you know kind of has the idea that it improves scalability. But can you kind of dive into the details of how proto dank sharding improves scalability and what exactly it does? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, dank sharding it's extremely complex, and so there's a, there's a few elements in it that we don't completely have the specs for. And so rather than waiting a few years for those things to get sorted out, proto dank sharding is sort of like the, the halfway step to dank sharding that includes elements that we know can be implemented today. And so essentially what it includes is a new transaction format called blobs or data blobs. And you can think of blobs as sort of like a sidecar on a normal transaction. And these are called like blob transactions. And then these blob transactions have their own separate fee market to that of normal transactions. So you can think back to EIP 1559, where they essentially, you have a target gas per block, and then sort of that, it, the base fee fluctuates based on where you are on that target. And you can think the same goes for these blobs where instead of targeting, uh, I believe it's 15 million gas per block, um, under normal transactions here, they're going to target two blobs per block, um, which is around a quarter of a megabyte in size. And sort of as a result of the separation, posting data to blobs instead of as called data directly to the chain is much cheaper. Um, and then rather than using data availability sampling, which comes in dank sharding, the, the nodes download all the data, but they're able to prune it after 18 days. So that's like a general overview of PDS. And so specifically as it pertains to L2s, 
why how do blobs help the l2s or like can users interact with blobs or is it only specific to those l2s that are posting call data to ethereum i mean technically users could use blobs but they're they're not going to use blobs yeah it's specifically a design for these l2s because right now what they're doing like ethereum right now is not made for rollups like a lot of the ways things are currently implemented it's kind of like makeshift to make things work so how they do it is they post call data directly like in the blockchain itself um and that that's how they do it whereas with blobs um we can we can go into like how they work specifically but instead of posting the data on chain itself you sort of have a kgg commitment to that data um and so yeah, it works a little differently and that, that allows it to be cheaper and more scalable. Can you go into KZG commitments a little bit in the data availability sampling uh, part of the equation? I can do my best. Um, yeah, so KZG commitments are a poly, pol, polynomial commitment scheme. And I'm sure like when we get into dank sharding and data availability, we might get into the polynomial stuff a bit more and get into the math, which seems a little scary, but it's actually when you break it down at a high level, it's, it's not that scary at all. Um, but yeah, they use KGG commitments um, instead of Merkle trees because um, it provides much better guarantees um, under data availability sampling, which is coming. And again, we can get into that later. It's going to make more sense, but essentially by like committing to the data instead of actually posting it, on the EVM, which is how it's done with call data, it just um, it's just way better uh, in general. But KGG commitments require a trusted uh, a trusted setup, which essentially is like a ceremony where a piece of data is generated, and then that piece of data is used every time the protocol runs. And essentially, how how it's done is like data is generated by a bunch of different actors that input a secret, and then that secret those secrets all together basically create that piece of data. And then as long as one person forgets their secret, then no one can take all the secrets and regenerate the data. Um, so yeah, that's essentially at a high level how KGG commitments work. I hope that made sense. No, yeah, this is definitely like the cutting edge of, of mathematics and, and cryptography. So it, it's, it's tough topics to even break down. But if I'm thinking about this correctly, right? Like, you know, Hashing is incredibly important to blockchains in general. So one of the beauties in that really created these things is like SHA-256. Uh, you can put any input text in uh, and get a unique output. And it's only a one-way street, right? You can't take the output and recreate the input. So when I think about uh, these commitments that you just described, you know, you need everybody's piece of data to recreate the output. Uh, but if only one of those pieces is missing, then I have no ability to recreate that again, because it's kind of like that one way street. Do I, am I thinking about that in the right way? Yeah, essentially. And yeah, KCG commitments, you can think of them similar to like validity proofs where you have a bunch of like computation, but in this case data, and it basically uh, consumes it down to like um, specific elliptic curve point. Um, and you can think of Merkle trees as sort of, uh, I guess they use fraud proofs, but you can think of it in the same way. Um, where like KGG commitments, you can actually specifically prove that the data was extended properly, which we'll get to, whereas with Merkle trees, you need a fraud proof. And so it's just like way more secure. All right, I'll, I'll take the blame for getting us into that deep of a territory that quickly. But uh, <laughs> I guess if we zoom out and rewind a little bit, um, how much orders of magnitudes does this help L2 scale? Uh, and, and if it's super drastic, do we even 
need dank sharding, which we'll discuss in a second uh, for the time being? Or is that something that you think we should maybe kick the can down the road until there's actual demand for block space to that degree? Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, the original the original target now is two blobs per block. I got a couple months ago, the specs was eight blobs per block. And I can imagine that over time they they increase from maybe two to four and then to eight, something along those lines. They'll have upsizes before we actually get dank sharding. But it's tough to like actually specifically map out like the actual cost because again, it's its own market and it's based on supply and demand. But talking to to Justin Drake, he seems to think that uh, with proto dank sharding, you'll have 10x improvement on cost. And then obviously with with upsizing, that might get more so. But you also have to think about it in the context of supply and demand, like as more rollups um, start to launch on Ethereum and they start to get more transactions, well, there's more demand with the same amount of supply of blobs, right? So it obviously depends on that supply-demand dynamic. So when you say a 10x improvement on fees, does that like what will all be passed back to the user, right? Like today, you know, if you just pull up L2 fees, optimisms like at, you know, 20 or so cents a transaction, uh, like is that where the, the 10x reduction will come in the actual cost that it takes a user to interact with the L2? Yeah, I think it's cost in posting the data to the L1, which obviously makes it makes its way back to the actual user transactions in the L2. But obviously these L2s today aren't really clogged as much as they theoretically could be. Right. So again, it all depends on supply and demand as a whole. But yeah, the, the 10x refers to 10x cheaper. So like 10 cents per dollar that you're currently paying. So net net, then I guess, dang, uh, you know, the surge really focuses around actually creating this scalable environment to build on. But that comes with like this massive increase in data. And so that's where like the data availability sampling comes in. Right. So the ability to uh, just kind of test for certain pieces of the data there. And if you test enough times uh, and it, for a certain piece of data, you can kind of assume all of it's there. It, can you do, like really exp explain that process and kind of what that looks like? Yeah, definitely. So like you said, under proto dank sharding, all the nodes have to download the data, but they can get rid of it after 18 days, which obviously helps them. But yeah, we can get into dank sharding first. So, or now. So essentially, yeah, like you said, they institute data availability sampling so that every node does not need to download all the data, but they only need to essentially look at a small chunk, which then allows the network to scale up the number of blobs they can generate per block by a large magnitude. So like I said, we were targeting two blobs under PDS, but then under DS, they're targeting 128 blobs, which is obviously a huge increase. Um, obviously with this requires a, like a specialized builder because these blocks will be 16 megabytes in size, whereas right now they're 90 kilobytes. And under proto dank sharding with two blobs, it's like um, a quarter of a megabyte. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a huge jump there. But yeah, with data availability sampling, like I said, it means each node does not need to download all of the data. They only um, download like a piece of the data and check it themselves. And that's sort of when you hear of like dank sharding, that's where the data itself is sharded. And so, um, yeah, I can get specifically into the math here. And I think a lot of the stuff I said earlier would make more sense. So essentially how it works under the hood is you need both erasure coding, which that like extends the data, and then you need to turn it into a polynomial, which is the polynomial math. And like how I like to explain it is first looking at the polynomial. So like going back to high school math, 
I think we all know what polynomials look like. It's like many terms with like a coefficient, um, a variable and an exponent. And you like add or subtract those together essentially and you get a polynomial. And a lot of the graphs, like they look like a, a squiggly line essentially. Um, and one cool property of polynomials is that uh, you can essentially recreate that polynomial only requiring one more point than the degrees in that polynomial. So the degree of a polynomial is its largest exponent. So if its largest exponent is three, like x to the third power, then you need only need four points to actually reconstruct that polynomial. And so if we look at like a set of data, if we have like four points that we're, we're measuring, uh, essentially you need 100% of the data to be available to, to recreate that polynomial. But this is where the, the extension comes in. So if you extend that data, which sort of makes like fake data, but derivatives of the real data, then if you have eight points on that same polynomial, well, you only need 50% of that data to be available, right? And that's where data availability sampling comes in. Because if you were to just do it naively, like on random data as it is, well, all of a sudden, if you just miss that one transaction that has like a billion dollars stolen, well, all of a sudden, like there's nothing you can do. Whereas this allows you to recreate, actually recreate all the data. And since you have 50% available in these extended polynomials, um, you can essentially uh, sample it enough times that you're like very sure that you have enough data. So obviously at first to have the 50% of the data available, it's 50% chance. If you sample it twice, then 75%. Then again, it's 87.5 and you just, you sample it 30 times and like, you're pretty, pretty confident that you have all the data there and that you can recreate, actually recreate the data. And because you can recreate the data, uh, that's where like the, the KZG commitments, you can actually prove that the data was extended correctly. Whereas Merkle trees, like you can't actually prove that. Like you need to also institute fraud proofs, which exist in optimistic rollups, but it's just like way better. And then... I don't, I don't want to get into the math of 2D KZG commitments. Um, you can definitely look at Dankrat. He's, he's talked plenty on that. So I would look that up. But essentially, yeah, KZG commitments verify that the data was properly extended and then allow it, like, allow it so you don't have to post all the data on chain, essentially. Um, I hope that, that clarified how DAS works. No, that was actually really good. Blew away my expectations there in your explanation. So, so good job there. Um, but I guess just to tie it all together, what is the entire point of data availability sampling? Just so, you know, you can kind of put a bow on that part. Yeah, absolutely. It's just the ability so that like nodes don't have to download all the data to make sure it's available. So you can essentially only have light nodes and they can make sure that the, the data is all there. And data availability is super important because you need to know, like at some point in time, someone was able to download the data, verify that it was correct, and like give it like the thumbs up essentially. And so this is like a, a way to do that at the most efficient level. Okay, so it boils down to scalability while also keeping the cost to validate relatively low. Um, so you're not, you know, getting all this bloat in terms of state growth, and you're actually able to validate as you know an at-home person like you or I. That ma that makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of proposer builder separation, you men mentioned that in this new, you know, roadmap coming further down the line that uh, builders are going to have a really specialized role. Do you think you could dive into what role builders play today and then also explain how that's going to evolve into the future? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, one piece of dank sharding is that it requires PBS to be implemented because, as I mentioned before, they need a specialized builder because you have 16 megabyte blocks 
and not like every proposer wants to create a 16 megabyte block nor the like can they in general and so it requires a specialized builder and right now the way things are implemented technically the proposer themselves is also the builder um just like in the the general preset like if you're a proposer you build the blocks from the transaction to see in the mempool then you propose it to the network um as of right now i think 91 to 92 percent of uh validators are opted into mev boost which is essentially the the external version of pbs and so yeah right now you have builders within mev boost that are building the blocks on behalf of these proposers and there's essentially competition between builders and building the most the highest value block at the searcher level which searchers essentially actually find the MEV opportunities um, and then present that into bundles of transactions where they, they give that to the to block builders. And then in the end, because you have competition at the, the searcher level and the builder level, um, they essentially like pay their way to have themselves included. And so the MEV for the most part makes its way to the validators that opt into MEV boost. What's different under PBS is that it's implemented in the protocol. So you have 100% participation instead of the 92% it is now. And you have the at least the ability to force the proposer to take the highest value block that they're given. Whereas now, like if they wanted to, a proposer could just make a deal with a block builder and go around it. Whereas, I mean, that's still technically possible in PBS, but it is, it's a lot more enforced and you, you can know if they're going around essentially. Um, I hope that explained it. And I know we had an episode in the past that I came on and explained MEV boost and how, how it worked. So I would definitely take a look at that because that's like pretty holistically how things are going to work uh, under PBS. Yeah, that's actually the, the inaugural episode of Zero X Research. So it's, it's great to have you back on. Uh, we'll definitely link that in the show notes if you're following along. Uh, I would agree. Highly recommend giving that one a listen. Kind of gives the, a great lay of the land uh, of how that system looks. And I actually just pulled up mevboost.picks, and we're actually closing in on a massive landmark uh, of 100,000 ETH captured through and returned to, st uh, returned to stakers through MEV. Uh, so that's like at current prices around $160 million, uh, $160 million which is that's just so super exciting, but obviously creates the uh, opportunity for malicious actors to kind of take advantage of a very profitable system. Uh, so how exactly... Does proposer builder separation really hone in and focus on like democratizing these markets? Is that really just a separation of the uh, those two entities? And does that make being a builder like a super challenging uh, or like super energy uh, you know hardware intensive process? Yeah, definitely a great question. So it is literally like taking MEV Boost and putting it um, in the protocol, um, and so a lot of the same competition is going to result from the searcher level to the builder level. I don't think much really changes. Like you said, it's basically separating those two roles, proposer and builder, and then things are going to look a lot like MEV boost. But like you said, once you implement dank sharding, that's when it's going to look a little different because the builders need to have a specialized role in building those huge blocks, which then requires them to have builder nodes that like have the ability to gather all the data from the data shards all together into a block um, within the, the slot time enabled. And so in my opinion, like looking at this now, it probably means that there's gonna be more centralization when it comes to that builder role. Um, although it, 
not not certain at the moment because it's likely that a lot of the builders that currently exist in MEV Boost, because they have their processes down, because they, they are getting blocks included, they have revenue, they'll likely scale up their operations. But at the same time, like you said, it's it's a lot more cost uh, enabled. It's a lot more expensive. You need more hardware, um, more capability, et cetera. So that may be a centralizing function when it comes to these builders, because only so many people are able to afford that equipment and then generate enough revenue through block building that they're able to uh, sustain their operations. And so that's one thing I think about that I'm not sure has fully been thought through is like having a huge, huge requirement on these block builders may be a centralizing force. And then at the same time, one thing I talked about in the last interview is like the builders have a lot of power and that they can see all transactions in the mempool that the searchers can, and they can see the bundles that the searchers send them like before they get them. And so if they wanted to, they could still front run the MEV opportunities that searchers are looking for. So maybe because of the, the bigger requirements on these builder nodes that all of a sudden, maybe they start extracting MEV for themselves and front running the searchers. I'm not sure I'm saying that like that's a possibility given the, the construct that they have. So I mean, there's a lot to think through when it comes to requiring the builder to have um, so much like power and ability essentially. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Westy, I, I saw you tweet, I don't know, a few weeks ago that you found something on the, the magician, Magicians Forum uh, talking about MEV being burned. Is that a part of uh, the Scourge or is that uh, something completely separate? And uh, overall, what are your thoughts on it? Yes, MEV, MEV burn is, yeah, it's something I only heard about like a month ago. But when you look at the the diagram for the, the roadmap that Vitalik released, it does have MEV MEV burn in there. So it's definitely something they're thinking about implementing. But yeah, to, to go into the specifics, essentially under PBS and I guess MEV, MEV boost now, MEV is essentially rewarded to validators uh, stake on the network or specifically the validators that propose that, that block. Um, but under MEV burn, instead of paying that to that specific validator, that ETH is burned which sort of has like a different structure when it comes to rewards where rather than rewarding that specific proposer, you're rewarding all ETH holders because it essentially contributes to the ETH supply as a whole. Um, and they've already been thinking about MEV smoothing as a, like a thing they want to implement because when you have right now, it's essentially a lottery system. Like it all depends on the block that you're validating whether you get like a lot of MEV opportunities or very little, a lot of transactions with priority fees are very little. So it's, especially with MEV, it's like a, a lottery model. I know I've seen a lot of Twitter bots that report like when a huge MEV block has been created. It's like, dang, I wish, wish I got that. Um, it's like a different style. And it, for Ethereum researchers, they think that it incentivizes people to pool their ETH because sort of like, um, the median ETH is higher than the average ETH under a lottery system. There's a lot of people that just want like a general yield as opposed to a lottery where maybe they hit it big, but really maybe they only get rewarded very small when they become the specific proposer for a block. And so by smoothing, it helps to stop that centralization because otherwise people will be chasing the, the median yield and will pool their capital together. And so they think that it's a better way to incentivize 
um, more decentralization. And this is just like a, a different implementation of that. Yeah, the smoothing makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I know people obviously like the sound of a lottery, especially in this industry. But, um, you know, I guess the beauty of, of liquid staking protocols, you know, that essentially is what that is, right? There, nobody gets, nobody in a liquid, like if I own staked ETH, I don't like pick which blocks I get the MEV rewards for. Um, you know, we just share the total rewards from Lido validators. Uh, but when I think about like MEV burn, like right now, I personally like almost view that as an additional incentive to stake, right? Because if I just hold ETH, then I get all of the the base fee burn that flows to me, right? Because that's decreasing total supply. So that kind of like flows to to me as a holder. Um, and right now, uh, I ran this number, these numbers for our year end report. Uh, so I haven't looked at the last two months, but MEV uh, made up for around like 15, 10 to 15 or so percent of total staking rewards. And so it's like, does it make sense to burn all those rewards, incentivize just holders? And it's like, you know, because then if I'm like, as a holder, I'm making all this, you know, making money, right? But I like, I'm getting this, these flows to me through burn that like, it's like, why, you know, do I need to stake or like, I'm doing fine not staking. So what do you think about that? Like, does it truly make sense to be burning this? Or could you potentially make some like dynamic element, you know, at, at certain times, based on certain conditions, we burn MEV? Uh, like, I don't know. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, for me personally, I've thought through this and I'm more so against MEV burn for a couple of reasons. I think there's a lot of people who stake, especially like individual solo stakers that only do so because of that lottery. Like they want the chance to get a bunch of ETH in a random block. Um, and I'm sure like I know me personally, like I would certainly solo stake for that lottery opportunity. And so I can imagine other, a lot of other people want that. Um, although maybe it doesn't matter what most people want. Like you're trying to stop the, the centralization of Ethereum, which I understand, but also with the MEV burn itself, um, Ethereum researchers are looking at this also from the supply lens, which I'm not sure they need to, but essentially, like you said, like there's less of a reason to stake because there's less staking rewards and these rewards are essentially democratized to all ETH holders. Well, as a result, you get less people staking, which is less issuance, and you get MEV burn, which burns more ETH. So on the whole, um, like Ethereum supply uh, can be a lot more deflationary than it is. Although I don't think it needs to be all that deflationary. I think it's perfectly deflationary, one, as is. And two, like even if there's a slight inflation, I think that's still way better than under proof of work. And I think giving the, the MEV rewards to stakers, um, it's just like a, a better, better outcome, like because more people are willing to stake, which um, obviously is better for network security as a whole. And yeah, so for me personally, I'm like sort of against MEV burn, but I think the Ethereum researchers are more so for it. I think I'd take for it, honestly, like just from what you described, just because if you're staking ETH, you're not contributing to any MEV, right? So why should you be entitled to those rewards? Like the users transacting should be the ones who get rewarded. And then on top of it, the consensus layer rewards still outweigh the MEV. So holders or non-stakers are still in the end getting diluted daily in comparison to stakers. Um, but yeah, that's a, an interesting question, one I'll be uh, paying attention to closely over the next few years. I think that's a perfect spot to end it, Westy. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we'll have to have you on again here soon um, to explain kind of the rest of the things going on in Ethereum. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This is super fun. I, I know I'm super excited about where the roadmap is headed. 
specifically with the scalability of rollups. And yeah, I was, was definitely glad to to get my thoughts out and to to explain to the the listeners sort of where ETH is headed uh, in the next few years. Yeah, great. You want to tell people where they can find you? Absolutely. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Westy Capital. And then definitely read BlockWorks Research if you can at blockworksresearch.com. Um, we've got a, a lot of free reports. Uh, we have our governance product coming up and then data later in the summer. There's definitely a lot to be excited about when it comes to BlockWorks Research. Perfect. All right. We'll catch you later, Westy.